The Lord is risen. Amen. One of my favorite details about Easter Sunday and the resurrection body of Jesus is his scars. Have you ever thought about the scars? The victory of Easter is so great and the triumph of the risen Christ is so great over sin and over death that we might be prone to overlook or at least forget a detail like the scars. When Jesus first appears to his disciples after the resurrection, they are startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. And Jesus says to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And then Luke comments in Luke 24, 38 to 40. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, meaning he showed them the scars. Not just on the cross scars, on his resurrection body. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus finally appears to doubting Thomas after eight long days for Thomas, the other disciples saw him first. Thomas did not. Thomas had to wait eight days. When Jesus finally comes to Thomas, he says to him, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. That Jesus' resurrection body would still show evidence of his wounds, that the scars of his crucifixion could still be seen and touched was both a confirmation to the disciples and us and a surprise. The confirmation is that this was, in fact, him risen. Same body that was killed on the cross rose again from the grave. He was not a spirit or ghost. He was risen, fully alive, now in glorified humanity. The surprise is that we might not expect a resurrection body to have scars. That might seem like a defect. When you raise him from the dead, God, why don't you get rid of the wounds, get rid of the scars? It's not a defect, it's a feature. Because these scars, these rich wounds on the resurrection body of Jesus are marks of his love for sinners. These scars tell the good news that he did not die for his own sins, but for ours. His wounds are invitations to sinners. His wounds are assurances to his people. His scars preach good news. They are marks of Easter glory, the very glory that makes the horrors of his crucifixion into what we now call Good Friday. 
And so on Easter Sunday, we come to the end of our Galatians series. And one of the last things Paul writes with his own hand as he takes up the pen is this in verse 17. Look at verse 17. I bear on my body, he says, the marks of Jesus. Like Jesus, Paul also had gospel scars. Scars which pointed not to his own work, but to Jesus' work. Just as sinners had struck and killed the Son of God, sinners had struck Paul and left scars on Paul. And to this point, God had preserved his life. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul mentions some of what he has suffered for Christ's sake. It's not a complete list. And probably more happened after he wrote 2 Corinthians. But here's what he said, 2 Corinthians 11. Countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, lest one. So not just 39 lashes on his back, but five times that happened. Three times, he says, I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned and he lived to walk another day. Paul's scars, the marks of Jesus he received from preaching the cross and the resurrection are his final argument in Galatians. That's what verse 17 is, his final argument. Before he closes in verse 18 with the benediction of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers, amen, he puts the final period in place with his own life and what he has been willing to suffer, to preach, and to defend the meaning of Good Friday and the news of Easter Sunday. But not only is Paul's final argument the marks of Jesus that he carries in his own body, but in this last section of Galatians, amazing thing, he takes up the pen for himself. To this point, he has a secretary. He's been dictating. The secretary's been writing down what he's been saying. But he comes to verse 11, and he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. This is Paul's way, right here at the end of Galatians, to shift into all caps into bold font. This is the gospel in all caps at the end of Galatians. And so these precious five sentences from verse 12 to verse 17 are direct and they are blood earnest with a power that is fitting for Easter Sunday. So what we see here in this last flourish from Paul's pen turns on a surprising thing. The theme of boasting. And so let's look at these verses in that light with Easter eyes and see this passage in three steps. Number one, humans are born to boast. Humans are born to boast. We are born boasters. You are a born boaster in two senses. We may quickly overlook the first sense in which we're born to be a boaster. 
The first sense is by God's design. He created humans to be boasters before sin entered in. He made us with the capacity to boast, with the calling even to boast. And what we mean by boasting is rejoicing out loud in words. That's a boast, rejoicing out loud with words. God made humans not only to think and to do, but to feel and to speak. He created us in his image, meaning to image him in the world, to represent him, to remind others about him, both fellow humans and watching angels. And he not only gave us the ability to think and to consider, but also to feel duly about reality and about God and about his world. And he not only gave us bodies to move and go there and lift this and do that, but he gave us tongues to speak, to give meaning to what we do with our bodies with the words that we communicate. In other words, God made us to boast in him. That's what it means to be his image bearers. Not only should we know him with our minds, but rejoice in him in our hearts and not only live in obedience to him, but speak words out loud that express that heart joy and point others to him. So God made us to boast in him. That's the first sense. The second sense then, which we're all, all, too, familiar, all too familiar with, right? Is that we are born into sin. And so our natural inclination often becomes sinful boasting. Instead of rejoicing out loud about God or in a holy way about others, we rejoice out loud about ourselves or about evil in all the various and complex forms this takes in conversation and online. We all know this. We have lived this. And of course, we are far more often to see this in others than we see it in ourselves. As a youth baseball coach, let me tell you, we don't have to teach the kids to boast. Part of our work is teaching them to let their play do the talking. There's a time to boast to mom and dad in a holy way in the car on the way home. We don't need to boast during the game or right after the game with the win. Part of what we're in, in, in maturity, we're trying to cultivate as baseball coaches. And parents know it all too well. We don't have to teach our children to boast. But what about your own soul? What are your boasts? Think about this. What aspects of your life, whether it's a manifest gift from God or it's seemingly something that you have done or achieved or an ability that you have, what do you rejoice in most and feel most drawn to express in words to others? What things are you so regularly excited about that you can't help but say it? What are your boasts? 
your qualities, your possessions, your achievements. What makes you look good when others hear about it? When Paul takes up the pen for himself in verse 11, he puts boasting at the heart of this last word that he has for the Galatians and for us. They, as well as the false teachers who are trying to persuade them, and Paul himself are born boasters. And we are born boasters. The question is not, as Pastor Jonathan said in the article this week, the question is not whether we will boast, but in what and in whom will we boast? So first here, verses 12 and 13, Paul turns to what not to boast in. Look at verses 12 and 13. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Not the expected Easter text, is it? I think this is the most succinct and direct summary of what Paul thinks motivates the troublemakers in Galatia. They are putting on a show to appease unbelieving Jews. They are play acting, as he talks about in chapter two. They themselves do not keep the whole Jewish law. They know they can't and they don't want to besides. But what they do want to do is avoid persecution. This new movement of Christians among the Jewish people claiming that the long-awaited Messiah has come in Jesus, this man who was crucified, and that he's alive again, this movement is troubling the Jewish leaders. And now the movement is spreading to Gentiles. Non-Christian Jews want to snuff this out. And so they begin persecuting Christians. In fact, that's what Paul himself helped start before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road and his world was turned upside down. Paul persecuted Christians for the same things. And so the false teachers, they're Christians. They're trying to avoid that kind of persecution. They want to appease non-Christian Jews by boasting to them that the Gentile converts to Christ are coming under the Jewish law. And the flashpoint for doing that is circumcision. The word here for making a good showing is literally have a good face. Put on a good face. The false teachers themselves, they don't keep the law but they're trying to get Gentile Christians to receive circumcision so they can boast in their flesh and have a good face toward unbelieving Jews so they don't get persecuted. And Paul says that however well-intentioned or naive that may be to avoid that persecution, 
It is dead wrong. And it compromises the very heart of the Christian message that Jesus is enough for right standing with God. It communicates the wrong things to Gentiles to make them add circumcision. And so we are born boasters by God's design and also in our sin. And the false teachers to save their own flesh from persecution want to be able to boast in the flesh from circumcision of these Gentile Christians in Galatia. Second then, Paul contrasts their sinful boast with his own holy boast. And he wants the Galatian Christians to join him in this boast. And he wants us on Easter Sunday to join him in this boast. This is how he wants us to rejoice in words. So number one, we all boast. All humans are born boasters. Two, Jesus turns boasting upside down. Jesus turns our boasting upside down. Paul does not say that becoming a Christian banishes all boasting. We still boast. Oh, do we boast? We boast in worship. We have been boasting here together in singing these songs, in saying the Lord is risen, the Lord is risen indeed. Preaching is boasting. Sharing the gospel in a holy and humble way is a humble kind of boasting, rejoicing in words. But Christian boasting is not like natural, sinful boasting into which we're born. It is not a boasting in the flesh. It is not a boasting in outward appearance. It is not a boasting in our strength. It is a boasting that's turned upside down because of the worth and beauty and power of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So Paul does boast. But of all things, he boasts in the cross. Today, it is all too easy for us to be so familiar with the cross that we don't feel the effect of what Paul is saying. We see crosses on steeples. We wear crosses as necklaces. We sing about the cross. We have a wealth of songs about the cross. I'm sure, Max, as you went to pick songs for Thursday, it was not hard to find a song about the cross. That is amazing. That's a good thing. Tell Jesus wants it to be. He wants us to sing about the cross. But the cross? It is so easy to forget or to overlook what the cross meant in the first century. It was horrible. It was not a topic of polite conversation. Perhaps some of you have heard the old hymn, Old Rugged Cross. I don't know if Hillsong's done a version of that one. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. 
the emblem of suffering and shame. The cross was horrific for the suffering that it put its victim through. Literally excruciating. Our word excruciating comes from the cross. But not just the physical pain. It was designed by Rome for its worst criminals to utterly humiliate them. And so Hebrews 12, 2 talks about despising the shame of the cross. Jesus went for the joy set before him. As horrible as the physical suffering was, it was equaled if not surpassed by the shame. And not just for Jesus, but for his disciples. These guys followed him for three and a half years. And their rabbi was crucified in such shame. Paul's going to boast in that. He says, literally, may I never boast except, and this is a huge exception, a huge exception. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a turn this is. That the very thing, a crucified Messiah that seemed so shameful, such a stumbling block to Jews, such folly to Gentiles, this very thing would not only be critical for Christianity, it would be central for Christianity. We talk about the cross every Sunday. We remember the cross at the table. We depict the cross in baptism. The cross would not be inappropriate to remember every day. The public execution of the Son of God is not just a barrier to be overcome to embrace the Christian faith, but it is at the very heart of our faith. And we celebrate it. We draw attention to it. We boast in it with a holy boast. Why is that? Why would we boast in such a shameful offense? Because the wounds that Jesus received at the cross were not for his own sins. They were for our sins. We read this Thursday night. Pastor David prayed it a few minutes ago. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. The eternal Son of God took human flesh and blood and went to that rugged, offensive, horrible, shamefully public cross as the spotless Lamb of God for our sins. We were the ones who deserved to spill our own blood in a violent death and in eternal separation from God for our rebellion, for our countless sinful boasts in ourself, in our flesh, in our evil. 
but the wonder of Christianity. The very heart of our faith, the good news, which we call the gospel, is that Jesus went to the cross for us. For all those who would take Paul's invitation to turn our boasting upside down and rejoice in the words, Jesus is Lord. We see elsewhere in Paul how boasting has been turned upside down for him. Instead of boasting in comfort and in the ease of his life and the size of his house and the type of his car, Romans 5.3, Paul says he boasts in his sufferings. And if God works the greatest good in the universe on that Good Friday through the most horrible evil, How can we not too see a path to boast for the worst in our lives? We grieve our sufferings. They are not sufferings if we don't suffer. We grieve them, we're pained by them. And yet, in Christ, there is a path to rejoicing in and through and beneath them. And instead of boasting in our own strengths and our own abilities, in 2 Corinthians 11.30, Paul says, I will boast in the things that show my weaknesses. And he says it again a few verses later. I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So Jesus turns our boasting upside down. Instead of boasting in our comforts, we boast in our sufferings. Instead of boasting in our strengths, we boast in our weaknesses. Instead of boasting in the natural human expectations for glory and power, just as the world, we boast in the offense of the cross. But it's Easter Sunday. What about the resurrection? When Paul says in verse 14, may I never boast unless in the cross of Jesus Christ, how does Easter fit into Paul's boasting only in the cross? If all Christian boasting is a boasting in and under the banner of the cross, what do we make of our Easter boast when we say, the Lord is risen, the Lord is risen indeed? Is that okay? The answer is that yes, it's okay. We boast in the resurrection. And when we do so, it is a certain kind of boasting. It is a humble boast. It is a God-magnifying, not self-magnifying boast. It is a Christ-treasuring boast. It is a cross-conscious boast. It is a boast in the surpassing power of God that is on display in human weakness, human suffering, human death even. It is the kind of boasting that comes on the other side of the grave, the kind of boasting that happens on the other side 
of the crucifixion, the kind of boasting we do on the other side of having our world turned upside down by Jesus. And not only is our Easter boast in the resurrection permissible, it's essential. Paul's boasting in the cross in verse 14 implies the Easter boast. If there is no Easter boast, there is no boasting in the cross. If Jesus stays dead, there is no glory in his cross. It is not then Good Friday. We boast in the cross because the one who, di- the one who died there for us rose again on Sunday morning to be our living, breathing, loving, reigning Lord. And our boasting in the resurrection, then, is a certain kind of boasting because of our boasting in the cross. So we're born boasters. Jesus turns our boasting upside down. And third and finally, Christians boast in the resurrection too. We must. So let's see here in this text, as we close, three glimpses of the resurrection in Paul's cross-centered conclusion to the book of Galatians. Look at verses, you can see verse 15 begins with the word for. So verses 15 and 16 are an explanation for verse 14 and his boasting only in the cross. Look there at verses 15 and 16. Four, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So three links here as we close to the resurrection in these verses. The first is the most obvious one is the word new creation. New creation points to God's action, God's initiative, God's power, not ours. That's the contrast between circumcision and new creation. In this context, circumcision would be the action that the Galatians would take in an effort to make sure that they have checked all the boxes and are in right standing with God. And remarkably, Paul says, uncircumcision doesn't doesn't count either. Not just circumcision, uncircumcision as well. Whether you take that extra step to secure your right standing with God or you refuse to take that extra step, that does not win God's acceptance with you. Not what you do and not what you don't do. You cannot, in your flesh, earn God's full and final favor. What counts is what he does. God's work in Christ, his new creation. And the beginning of that new creation is the first great act, the first and decisive initiative, the first great burst of divine power that comes on Easter Sunday in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the beginning 
on Easter of the new creation. It begins with Easter, and then it comes to us by faith and God's work in our lives, and then it culminates someday in a new heavens and a new earth. So new creation is the first glimpse of Easter. Second glimpse is the connection to Galatians 2.20. This is the end of verse 14. Paul says that by the cross, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The other place in this letter where Paul talks about being crucified with Christ is Galatians 2.20. There he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So verse 14 only mentions crucifixion, but Galatians 2.20 mentions crucifixion with Christ by faith and resurrection with him by faith. Jesus was crucified and raised so that Paul's old self and our old self was crucified with him and raised to new life with him. We now live with a new heart in Christ, a new center, a new ultimate allegiance. We are new creatures indwelt by the Holy Spirit, even as we continue to battle to make headway in our lives with our remaining sin. And we don't do so simply individually, but together. That's the mention of the Israel of God. That's, that's God's people, the church, the true Israel. He's saying, in effect, Galatians, if you want to be in the true Israel, the path is not to receive circumcision like the old Israel. The path of the true Israel is to live by the rule of faith in the realm of the Spirit, living it out in love for each other. Finally then, the last Easter glimpse in these verses, the marks of Jesus. Paul comes to the end of Galatians. He takes the pen in his own hand in verses 11 to 16. And then he gives his one last word, one last argument in verse 17 before he gives the benediction. And verse 17 is one final boast. This is a big time boast. And it's a holy boast. It is a boast in the cross. Because apart from the cross and apart from the resurrection, this is not a boast, it's a defect. But in the cross and on Easter Sunday, it is a holy and wonderful boast. Verse 17, from from now on, let no one cause me trouble, false teachers, for I bear on my body, Paul says, the marks of Jesus. In other words, I not only answer with this letter, I answer with my own life. My skin is scarred, Paul says, from countless beatings. 
from receiving the lashes 39 times on five different occasions, from being stoned because I have stood by this gospel with my own life. Rather than trying to tweak the message to avoid persecution like the false teachers are doing, Paul has stood by undeterred. Rather than seeking under pressure to put marks on other people's flesh so he can report a head count on circumcisions, Marks have been made in his own flesh as he has preached and defended the cross and the resurrection, that it can be embraced by faith alone and that that is enough to get and keep you in right standing with God. And so Paul says, I bear on my own body as faint echoes and faint pointers the very marks of Jesus that he bore on his glorious resurrection body and still bears. Marks that are no defect, but marks that shine out with glory. So Paul boasts in the cross and the resurrection too, and so we boast. The Lord is risen. Amen. And so we come to the table. And as we do so on Easter Sunday, we remember and celebrate in particular that Jesus is alive. His resurrection not only fulfilled God's word. God made good on his word. He promised to raise the Messiah. His resurrection not only vindicates that his life was perfect, that the sins he died for were not his own. His resurrection not only shows that his cross work was effective, his resurrection not only means that we can be connected to his work because we're joined to him by faith, but his resurrection also means that he is alive, that we might know him and enjoy him. We call this table communion. And one aspect of that communion is that As we gather together, as we retain the elements, as we eat together, we commune with each other in the most significant reality in the universe, that we are in Christ. But the main communion is not with each other. That's essential, critical, it's secondary. The main communion is that here at this table, by faith, we commune with the risen, living Jesus Christ in glorified humanity, with glorified scars that exude the gospel invitation. And we will glory in them forever. And we commune with him as we receive and eat in faith.